Hey, welcome or welcome back to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. I'm your host, Chris Desmond. This is a show where we help you get better at doing hard things. Today, I've got an amazing guest for you, Jen Brown, who is the founder and chief coach of Sparta Chicks, an online community and coaching business that supports women who participate in endurance sport and outdoor adventures by sharing experiences, honest conversations, and practical tools. Jen is a reformed corporate lawyer. She's hiked or climbed mountains on four continents around the world after realizing in her late 20s that running is an amazing way to change your life. Jen is obsessed with two things. Power of sport is a catalyst for change and the way the stories we tell ourselves and particularly the imposter complex, causes us to diminish our abilities and downplay our achievements. She helps executive teams and athletes navigate fear, self-doubt, and the imposter complex, and get results for people that really exceed their expectations. I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Jen today. It's a lot of fun. It's fascinating. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with us today. Jen Brown, welcome to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Very unusual to be on this side of the podcast for once. And we'll get into why that's unusual for you, but I like a little background about people to start with. So where were you born? Where did you grow up? So I was born in a place called Penrith, which is about an hour west of Sydney here in a beautiful Australia. And we're just at the base of the Blue Mountains, which is often where you will find me these days on the trails somewhere. Or not find me, hopefully. <laughs> awesome. And Jen, were there any big formative experiences growing up that you remember that have kind of put you on the pathway that you're on today? I don't think there's been a single a single formative experience, more like lots of little turning points or, or course corrections along the way because I actually started, as a kid, I was a bookworm. I was not sporty. I was not outdoors. You know, school holidays was just an excuse to read more books. It was not an excuse to get outdoors. And then I decided about 16 I wanted to become a lawyer. So I went down that path. And I blame LA Law. If you're old enough to remember LA Law, then I blame LA Law. And then it wasn't until I got into uni that I discovered I loved the gym and strength training. I think that was probably the first time in my life where I actually really discovered physical strength and the mental strength and the mental benefits that come with that physical strength. And then I started working as a lawyer and stopped all training because of the long hours and the long days and put on some weight. But eventually I went back to the gym and I got back into strength training. And then... What was the catalyst for getting back to the gym? Weight loss. Honestly, okay. it was weight loss. Like, uh, I mean, it's funny because I very much take the body positive philosophy approach these days. But in truth be told, I'd put on about eight or nine kilos. I just wasn't feeling comfortable in my skin or confident. And I just wanted to get back to those days of feeling strong from uni. And was it and easy to transition back into the gym when you were feeling in that state? That's a really good question. From memory, there were a couple of start-stop moments. Like I can remember a couple of times, you know, where you sort of start, you're committed, but you're not fully committed. So, you know, it might last for a couple of weeks and then you're you know, it gets cold or something and then you go again for a couple and then you stop for a couple of weeks. And I distinctly remember like 
this is going back several years now, but I distinctly remember, you know, it took me a couple of goes to get back into it. But I think like anything, you know, one day it just clicked. And unfortunately, we can't really identify what was the, for me at least, what was the click clicking factor. But I just fell in love with it again. And I can't put the timeline together, but at some stage, I then decided I wanted to lose a little bit more weight because it was all about the weight in those days, to be honest. And then I started running and just on the road, just around my house to begin with. And I lived at the time, at the time I was living in Mosman, which is on the the shore in Sydney Harbour, which is surrounded by lots of bushland. And one day, every time I went out for a run, I would run past this one trail that sort of disappeared through this park and off into the bush somewhere. And I can still remember thinking to myself, I wonder where that goes. I wonder where that goes. I wonder where that goes. And then one day I decided to, what the hell, let's find out. And I followed it. And literally, I still remember the moment. And it sounds almost corny to tell the story, but I still remember the moment. Like I was literally running along this path. I'd run 20 metres and I just had this flood of, joy and happiness and like this is what I meant to do like this is where I'm meant to be and this is the sort of stuff that I'm meant to to do so I suppose in hindsight I guess maybe is that that is one of the formative experiences that sort of have shifted the trajectory at least of my you know sporting and outdoor life or it started it I guess more than anything how how long was this trail three kilometers like it was literally this little trail that joined up you know back looped back onto the road again I subsequently discovered there's actually about 30 kilometers of trails through that section but it was just this little one section and literally it was within the first 20 or 30 meters I just remember feeling exhilarated in a way I'd never felt exhilarated road running so it it was just something special about it yeah, very cool, very cool. That was a little bit of a tipping point for you in terms of trail running. Where did you go from there? almost wish I could go back to the girl or the woman that I was back on that day in about, that must have been about 2004-ish. I don't even remember the, the year. And tell her all the things I've subsequently done because I'm pretty sure she would not believe me. So trail, yeah, led into trail runnings, led into my first ultra marathon, which was a 45-kilometre race through the Blue Mountains here in Sydney across the six-foot track. That led into hiking. So I hiked in Nepal, and then that led into some mountaineering trips. So I went back to Nepal 18 months after my first trip and climbed some mountains there and did Kilimanjaro and the Kokoda Track in Papua New Guinea, just north of Australia. Aconcagua in South America, attempted Aconcagua, I didn't summit. So that, yeah, it sort of led me down that path. And then since then, there's been the addition of mountain biking and ocean swimming and triathlons. And now I've come full circle back to trail running again. So yeah, I'm pretty sure she, that version of me, would not believe half of the things I've done since then. Yeah, it's a really interesting way to put it there. Obviously, that, that version of your past self wouldn't believe the things that you've done and, and attempted now. Do you think that she would have been excited by the possibility of them? If I think back to myself where I was 10 years ago and think of some of the stuff that I've done in the last 10 years, but some of the stuff, the 25-year-old version of me would think, why the hell would you want to go and do that? Uh, look, it's a good question. I think... 
two things come to mind as you were asking that question. One is that even as a kid, I was always fascinated with Mount Everest. Mm. No idea why. Just, you know, watched everything I could find, you know, anything related to Mount Everest. I remember watching, I remember I had a couple of books about it. So there was obviously a thread of fascination with mountains there from the start. And the other thing is that I can't help but think that the person we are today was there 10 years ago. But we've sort of, our sports and our adventures and our endeavours have helped to peel back the layers and reveal who we really are at our core rather than be a new part of ourselves, if that makes mm, sense. It does, it does. And I think like one of the things that I know that, or one of the ways that I know you like looking at this is around the stories that we tell ourselves as well. And I guess that it kind of relates to maybe having some stories when we were younger layered on top that we hadn't really questioned their validity yet mm-hmm. and been able to kind of peel them back and ta- and get rid of the ones that didn't serve us. Is that a way that you would think about it? Definitely. I think, I mean, as I, I said at the start, and I probably even used the words, I was not a sporty or active kid, which is often, not surprisingly, one of the stories my clients often tell me that I will pull them up on when they say it. I'm very aware of the stories I tell myself now. The stories I was telling myself then, it's hard to identify what they were and how they've changed. But I have no doubt seeing myself as not an active or sporty person until, you know, I was at uni 2021, 22 was probably the first time I started to actually see myself as athletic. So that's 20 years of stories about not being athletic to peel back. And I don't know if the stories ever completely dissipate, but we certainly, your response to the stories when you do catch yourself telling them is a lot faster. I'm a lot more aware of the stories I tell myself now about what I can and can't do as opposed to, certainly as opposed to the 10 year, you know, the version I was then or the gen I was then. Yeah, and I think the way that you framed it there is that you had 20 years of telling yourself and training yourself to believe that story. You've had an extra 10 years now since mm. you started to, to kind of change these stories and become the gen you are now. It'll be interesting to kind of look back in 10 years' time about how your story has changed again and kind of mm-hmm. what Jen in 10 years' time thinks of Jen now as well. Yes. Oh, that's interesting. And actually, you made me think too because... So I've struggled with running injuries a lot over the years and I certainly, even in the last five or so years, did get into that habit of telling myself that maybe I'm just not meant to run. You know, maybe running's just not for me or am I still a runner? Like if I haven't been running, maybe maybe the story I tell myself is maybe I'm no longer a runner. So there's definitely stuff going on there even today. And the stories will continue, no doubt, for the rest of my days. Yeah, I'm probably much more aware of them mm. these days. But it's a valid question in terms of maybe I'm not a runner anymore because do I still enjoy running? Or is it maybe I'm not a runner anymore because I haven't been out for three months or six months and when I get back into it, it's just really hard to start. Running is one of the worst. I mean, you can go back to the gym and you can modify your weights and things, but getting out running, you just need to go running. And it's that that first month is horrible sometimes. I'm in the middle of the first month at the moment. I had surgery last year and I haven't gone back to running since. And 
I'm in the middle of that first horrid three months at the moment as a coach is actually a great gift as well because it does remind you how hard that first couple of three six months really is as right it really sucks <laughs> but I know having done it before there is there is a tipping point and the tipping point is coming and every day I go out for a run I'm just one step closer to that tipping point where it will become easy and I won't feel like I'm coughing up lungs or dying slow death <laughs> yeah yeah and I think I think going through stuff like that especially when you're a coach or a trainer as well is really beneficial in terms of helping you deploy empathy to the people that you're coaching and I know that for me I'm going to have to go through that and when I start get to start running again in about six weeks time we were talking about me getting some metalware out of my legs and I haven't done a whole heap of running since our wee boy was born just over a year ago so it's going to be a little bit brutal for me getting back into it as well but for everyone out there who is thinking about starting getting into running once you've gone through that first month it's it's great and even sometimes yeah. in the first month there's some cool stuff that goes on too yeah I had one of those runs the other day like I, my husband and I never run together we'll often ride together but we never run together because he kind of just bounces along ahead of me and it's annoying but we went out together and it was just one of those days where it just felt easy and you know I still had to take my walk breaks but the sections where I it was one of those runs where you just thought yeah I can see progress I am making progress I'm on my way back it's happening and then the next run I went out for it was terrible but I know yeah. that is part, that's part of the process too it is well that's quite a nice segue actually I mean, you're, you're in a privileged position that you have run long, long distances before, so you know that it's possible and you know how much you can enjoy it, but it's still hard going through that initial stage. How do you get yourself through that hard bit? That's a really good question. I Depends on the day, depends on the mood, depends on the story I'm telling myself in that moment. More often than not, I really try just to focus on the process. Forget about the outcome, forget about the speeds, forget about distance traveled, anything like that. And just focus on what I need to do today. One of my overarching philosophies in life is, is the next 24 hours. What do I need to do right or today so that this time tomorrow I'm in a better position than I am right now? And sometimes that means, so the focusing on the process then is, you know, what needs to happen today? What does my run look like? Do I run? Do I need to focus on my recovery? You know, I, I really try and tap into the constructive actions that I can take. Sometimes it's train, sometimes it's recover. Because I tend to overthink things. It's very easy for me to get up in my head and then feel very overwhelmed by the enormity of what I'm trying to do, even if the enormity is to run 30 minutes again without stopping. So when it gets so in in that sort of perspective, I really come back to the process. What needs to be done today? What does my training session look like? What box do I need to tick? If I'm getting too up in my head about things, starting to overthink, overanalyze, worry about if I'm going to make it, if I'm going to be fit enough, will I fail, blah, blah, blah. I really try and get out of my head and back into my body. So even things like a couple of belly breaths, me are a godsend. Like they really work to just slow slow my thoughts down, slow my head down. Sometimes it's just a matter of a bit of mindfulness. What am I thinking? What are the stories I'm telling myself? Because sometimes I find it 
even if you're aware of the fact that you tell yourself stories, sometimes the stories can sneak in without you realizing it. So actually taking that step back and go, okay, what is the story I'm telling myself in this moment? Is the story, this is too hard? Is the story, I can't do this. I'm not going to be able to do this. You know, I'll do it tomorrow. (laughs) Whatever the story is. And then analyze it, think about it, reframe it, come up with a new saying, a new a new story, a mantra, whatever it might be. And sometimes it's just, a, you know, almost a mindfulness meditative practice of what are five things I can see, what are five things I can smell, what are five things I can hear, just to get myself out of my head and back into sort of a calmer state of mind and, and to get out of that monkey mind that's going on upstairs. So, yeah, it really depends on the situation and, and what's going on that at the time. Yeah, that's really cool. And as I said, I haven't been running a whole heap kind of over the last year and a half or so, and I'm going to be getting back into it. But the the runs that I have done have all been for mental health rather than physical health. It's to slow things down, to make myself feel better mentally. Like there are a couple of things that I utilize when, when I'm out just to, to try and slow things down. One of them is looking at the horizon. Just try and have a little bit of perspective Um, rather than just looking right down in front of me and kind of focusing on all the little small things, having a look up at the horizon and and thinking about the big picture. But also there's there's things like just thinking about your footfall as well as that just left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, and saying it to yourself over and over and over and over and over again. And sooner or later that just drowns out all the other garbage that's going on and whirling around in your brain yeah actually you those two things remind me of two other things I do so I often run at sunrise Mm. so one of the things is just looking at the sky as it changes color you know noticing the changing color describing the colors thinking of the colors and noticing the differences and I don't think left right left right but I count you just remind I don't it's actually something I realize I think I do not deliberately but consciously so I'll actually count like one two I get to about 30 and then I start again. And there's just something, you know, that's quite meditative and very much the same, I guess, as left, right, left, right for me too. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's always interesting picking other runners' brains about stuff that they use. I'm going to change direction a little bit here. Okay. So you got into all of this outdoor activity, adventure, challenge, however you want to frame it. Whilst you were a lawyer, how long did it take for the pendulum to swing so that you thought, hmm, actually, maybe I don't want to be a lawyer anymore? Oh, that's a really good question. It probably took, it was about three years between my first trip to Nepal, maybe three and a half years, and when I left law. So my first trip to Nepal, I went, I did the trek to base camp via Gokyo, for those who know the area, and I came back from that trip. And I said, that's it, I'm going traveling. (laughs) Because I had done the classic, you know, high school, university, bachelor's law. I did my master's degree and then I, you know, worked full time while doing master's degree. I would have been 30 30 at the time. I went, that's it, I'm going traveling. I haven't had a year off. I'm going to go traveling and see all the things. And then it was 18 months later, I was back in Nepal on my climbing trip. And then at that time, I took six months off to do because I did all these trips back to back. And it was during that six months off, I thought to myself, I cannot go back to law. I'm done with law. So I think there was there was definitely a trigger of, 
I've got to get out of this profession there. But at the same time, it also sort of, I guess, coincided with this increasing interest and passion around physical and mental performance. Like, how do I get the best out of myself, both from a physical perspective and from a mental perspective? And yeah, so the two crossroads of the growing dissolution with law and the increasing interest in in um, physical and mental performance sort of cross paths. So I actually started, while still working full-time as a lawyer, I did my personal training degree. And so I uh, was then working full-time as a lawyer with a little PT business on the side and was able to build that up to, so I was able to go part-time law part-time PT and then eventually I tipped the scales and and walked away from the security blanket that was my paycheck and left the law entirely. So it was quite a prolonged process because I was still still working as a lawyer throughout that whole period. So it would have been three, about three years, the the whole transition took. In the scheme of your life, three years is, it's not much. The same amount of time that you probably spent, well, on one of your (laughs) undergraduate degrees that yeah three years is is minimal to kind of do a transition of that size I think and I think that's it's one of the things that we sell ourselves short on really often is that by no means am I am I slagging off law I've got a, a lot of mates who are lawyers and who absolutely love being lawyers which is great but I think whatever it is that you're doing you do need to be excited about it most of the time but not going and doing something because you think, oh, it's going to take three years or it's going to take five years or, hey, it's going to take 10 years. If you invest that time now, like if I think about it myself, if I didn't like what I was doing at the moment, I'm 35 and if by 38 I could be doing something that I was really interested in for the rest of my life, it's a bit of a no-brainer. But when we look at it from the other side, we shoot ourselves in the foot sometimes because we think, oh, it's still such a long time. By the time I hit 38 and I'm still doing the same old stuff, that is not too bad, but it doesn't really excite me. Then that's almost three years wasted, I reckon. It's interesting because I remember thinking back at the time, you know, I think when you're in the middle of it, it's very frustrating because, you know, it takes time to make the decision to change. Like that was probably actually the hardest part was actually putting my hand up and saying, I don't want to be <laughs> eight years of university. I've worked as a lawyer for 13 years, but I'm done. I'm out. And so that time between making the decision, mentally committing, checking, trying not to check out of your work as well if you have to keep going, and then making the transition, whether that's study or whether that's, you know, changing careers or starting business, whatever it is, there's a, you know, it's, it can feel really, really long and really, really frustrating when you're in the middle, middle of it. But you're right that in the scheme of things, like I spent, I did five years just undergrad. I spent much more time trying to become a lawyer in the first place than it took me to transition out of it. So I think it's a good point to keep in mind that it, actually in the scheme of things, and I've been out of the law now for eight years. So three years that long ago is just a blip on the radar these days. It's a great investment. And Jen, what do you do at the moment? What's the stuff that you do with physical and mental performance? I do a couple of things. I have a business called Spider Chicks. No offense to the guys. We do have guys who visit us. So to put the the link in the chain together, I started working as a personal trainer, specializing in working with runners because that was what I was doing at the time. And then one of my clients who was a triathlete asked me to coach her. 
for uh, half Ironman as they were in the day. And I'd done some tries, and I, so that's what that got that's what got me into triathlon and running coaching as well. And in the first two or three years of doing that, I realised I was having really different conversations with my male clients as opposed to my female clients. My male clients were asking me things about the technical. So, you know, gear, equipment, nutrition, training sessions, etc. But my conversations with my female clients were very different. They were generally around fear and self-doubt. What if I make the cutoff? What if I crash? What if I drown? What if I don't finish? What will people think? You know, essentially it was that it came back to that, am I good enough to do this? And what if I'm not good enough? And so from that, I launched Sparta Chicks, the business, as a safe space to talk about these issues. Because the other thing I realized is that we don't, as a community, particularly talk about fear and self-doubt that well. And if we talk about it, we don't talk about it openly. It just tends to be whispered conversations between people because I think there's often a layer of shame about what we fear and what we perceive to be our inabilities. And because we don't talk about it, you just feel alone and isolated too. So Sparta Chicks became this place. So through Sparta Chicks, I was coaching women in the physical side of their sporting goals, whatever they may be, but also a very heavy focus on the mental and mindset goals So making sure, diving into the tools and tactics and strategies that people can use to manage their mindset because that was the stuff I was seeing was holding women back. It wasn't the physical requirements of their goal. It was the mindset stuff. So the Sparta Chicks is my main vehicle now to A, have these conversations and B, help women with both the physical and the mental side of performance. I'm kind of interested in why do you think there is the the discrepancy between the female clients that you had and the male clients and that mindset? I, I know that guys have some version of self-doubt and fear and the oh what if I can't do it approach I'm interested into kind of in your experience like why do you think that there is that that difference I certainly recognize and appreciate that men feel fear and self-doubt have experiences with the imposter complex as well I think there's two things that come from that one is that it's the way that girls are conditioned as opposed to boys I think we're taught from a very young age to look after other people first, to put other people first. At least girls of my generation, whether that's changed now with the millennials, is something that I am exploring and, and trying to, to suss out. It actually made me think of, to go answer this question in a very roundabout way, about two years ago I was with a client and her two kids, one girl, one boy, about the same age, were climbing in a tree. She told the girl to get down but not the boy. Now, that's an extreme example and perhaps even a one-off example, but I do think it's an example of how girls have been conditioned to not put ourselves out there, not put ourselves in dangerous or risky places. We're conditioned to look after other people and put other people first. So I think this whole massive layer of social conditioning at play Girls from a very young age get a very different message about what it means to be physical and active and to take up space as opposed to boys. I guess the kind of the next question then is 
how does that fear show up when people are wanting to start, when women are wanting to start to take on challenges? It shows up in all the ways. I've had a few conversations with people lately. I think there's probably three main places in the journey where it shows up, even when it comes to setting goals. Very often I have conversations with clients who might want to do, say, a half marathon, but they'll enter the 10K because they know they can do the 10K but they don't know that they can do the half. So they're going to enter the 10K because it's safe. I spoke to a woman recently who had entered a 50K and she had actually written an email to the race director asking to be switched down to the half because she was, she didn't think that she could do it, even though she's done all the training. Like it's not as though she's been sick and ill and missed half her training. She's actually done all her training and still not one of my clients, I will say, but still is doubting whether she can do it and actually went as far as to write the email. She deleted the email ultimately. So I think it very much shows up when it comes to setting the goals. It shows up halfway through training too, I find. The first six, eight weeks, pretty good. Um, but I find it that sort of halfway mark where fatigue starts to set in, the distances start to creep up, the race gets, the event or race, whatever it might be, gets much closer. And I find people can slip into this habit of comparing where they are today, what they're doing in training today to what they need to do on race day and not recognizing there's a massive, actually a massive gap in time between those two events. And then it can show up again, obviously, the the week before, the day before, the day of the race, in everything from nerves and anxiety, so bad that they're not able to eat breakfast in the morning of a race, vomit even from anxiety and nerves, really get stuck in a negative headspace about, I can't do this, I don't deserve to do this, I'm going to miss a cutoff, and really get in that mindset that's not conducive to what they're trying to do. So, And it can show up in, you know, for some women it will only show up on race day. I know some women who will happily sign up for every race under the sun, even if they, you know, for distances that are far exceed anything they've ever done, but it, it creeps in more the closer you get to the race. And likewise, I know uh, women who are fine on race day, but actually committing to the goal in advance is their trigger. Interesting. And are there different, uh, there are different approaches to take to overcome the fear in each of those different stages? Good question. Never actually sat down and thought about how I approach each of those situations from with a particular client. I think the overarching thing has to be coming back to the stories that we tell ourselves and making sure that we aren't confusing the stories we're telling ourselves with facts. Because very often we can tell ourselves a story and believe it to be true. So it becomes a fact. The example I just gave about halfway through training, someone goes, oh, you know, I only did 10Ks today and I've got to do 20Ks in um, on race day and I don't think I can do it. Yes, you did 10Ks today, but your race is not for 12 weeks. It's not as though I have to, it's not, you're not going out to run your 20Ks tomorrow. So almost reality checking the stories that we're telling ourselves, making people really aware of the stories we tell ourselves too, because very often, as I was saying in my own example earlier, it's really easy for these stories to sneak in and for you not to realize that they're actually a story. They're not fact. So those would be the key things, recognizing what stories you're telling yourself facts checking, reality checking them, and then trying to stay in the moment. So going back to my other philosophy of the next 24 hours. So if you're getting too up in your head about worrying about a race that's in six or 12 or 18 weeks, 
what can you do in the next 24 hours so that this by this time tomorrow you're in a better position? Sometimes it's train, sometimes it's recover. Yeah, they, they'd be the key main things I come down to. Cool. With my physiotherapy hat on, the body is a pretty amazing thing in terms of what we can put it through and, and what it will do for us. And I mean, if you can run 10Ks, then you could go out and do a half marathon tomorrow and you could finish it you wouldn't be great the next day but you could <laughs> you're do gonna it. hurt but you could do it and that's often one thing I say to clients like especially in that sort of two or three weeks leading up to a race I have very often said to them if I made you go and do the race tomorrow you could do it there's no there's no doubt about that but it is one of those things that you know it's very easy to convince yourself if you're only running 30ks in training how and feeling you know pretty tired by the end how on earth it's impossible. Like, how on earth can I run an extra 12Ks? But if you had to, you could. And you could probably do it tomorrow anyway. And I'm just thinking one of the marathons that I've done before, come back from holiday and I had about eight weeks to train for it. And I thought, oh, this is going to be tough. But it actually ended up being great. I was really focused and I was like, oh, I need to get out and, and run. <laughs> Sometimes if I have too long to think about things, then that's where I run into trouble. But yeah, that, that eight week mark was good. Now, one thing that you mentioned earlier, probably about 10 minutes ago, was, was around the imposter complex. Can you tell us what the imposter complex is, what you mean by that? Yes. So often here it referred to as the imposter syndrome. It's not technically correct, but just for point of reference. So the imposter complex was studied back in the 70s. It was a study done on a group of high um, high achieving women. And what they found is that the women were unable to internalize their success. So any results that they achieved were the result of luck or a fluke or um, they got opportunities because someone liked them. Um, so it's really that sense that many of us have of not being ready or not being good enough um, that we don't deserve the opportunity that we've got, that we don't deserve to be on the start line of that race, that we feel like a fraud, that we don't belong, that any minute now everyone's going to find out we've got no freaking idea what we're doing or what we're talking about. That, if you've ever felt that way or any of those ways, then that's probably the sting of the imposter complex. And Jen, where does it come from? Good question. I don't think anyone has, uh, no one that I know of has really understood where this originates from. Perhaps it goes back to our conditioning again because we are taught, you know, humans are a social social being. We have developed and we've been, A, we've developed, you know, over the last 10,000 years to belong to a tribe, to a community, not to stand out from the crowd because if we did, we risk being eaten by saber-toothed tiger or whatever, or being stolen by the, the neighbouring tribe. So our brain has definitely developed to make sure that we don't stand out. And any time we do stand out, whether that is on a start line of a race or putting your hand up for a promotion at work or asking for a pay rise or starting a business or anything like that, anything when you're, when you're on the edge of that comfort zone, you are stepping out of the tribe. And, you know, how that connects to the imposter complex isn't very well understood, but there definitely seems to be that sense of outside the norm or outside what's expected of you. And particularly for women, this study was done on women, it, it, they had just somehow, these women had just somehow got the message that, or all women seem to have got this message that our results and our success are not because of our innate 
abilities, it's because other reasons. We're lucky. People like us. We, you know, they're nice to us, that sort of stuff. We just can't internalise the fact that we got the result in the race, we got the promotion, we got the pay rise, we got the project, whatever it is, because of our own innate wisdom, talent, ability, experience. Yeah, it's interesting. And as you were talking there, it kind of made me think that, and especially in the day and age that we live in now with social media and, and what we what we see out there is that the people that we do see dip out, step up and go on and do really cool things, these people appear to us, looking at them from the outside, that they're confident, that they're competent, they're creative, that they have all of the stuff going on for them. And we compare ourselves to those people. And yeah, we we do have some of those same qualities that we, we have a certain amount of confidence, we have a certain amount of competence, and we have that creativity. But we have all this other negative stuff that's going on as well that's pulling us pulling us back. And what we don't see from those those people that go and do cool stuff is that yeah they have those things but they have all that negative stuff that's going on as well. It's like a duck. Is that they're kind of yes. pristine on top of the water, but below the water, the feet are just going a million miles an hour. We don't see that stuff. And because as a society, we don't particularly talk about that stuff very well. I think there's a lack of understanding that everyone goes through some of these thought processes to a, to a greater or lesser extent that, hey, I'm not... I'm not good enough here. I'm comparing myself to that person over there. But we don't see the behind the scenes for that person and what is what is going on with them. Yeah. Um, so it's really easy to cast ourselves in a negative light. Exactly. And what's that saying about don't compare your behind the scenes to other people's show? It made me think it's actually one of the reasons I started my podcast initially because I there is this misconception that elite performers, professional athletes, successful people don't have the same fear and the same self-doubt and the same struggles with the imposter complex that the rest of us do. And so that was actually, you know, one of the ways I wanted to sort of, I was going to say get under the duck. That sounds really (laughs) bad. That is not what I meant. That's the title of the episode now. (laughs) Crap. Um, You know, it's one one of the ways to bust that, that myth is that these people do struggle with fear and self-doubt and the impost and feeling like a fraud and all of this stuff they've got their own stuff going on um mental or otherwise as much as the rest of us so yeah that that prompted that was one of the the reasons i started my podcast too i'm gonna turn that into a hashtag eh? hashtag get under the duck tell me more about your podcast though jen like and we alluded to this right at the start that it's weird for you being on the other side of the microphone you're usually the one who is asking questions but Mm. What's your podcast called? Who do you talk to and what do you talk to them about? So the podcast is called Sparta Chicks Radio, very imaginatively named. So I launched the podcast in 2017, so we've been going about two and a half years now. The idea was that it was obviously an extension of Sparta Chicks and a way to really shine the light, curate conversations and facilitate conversations so that we can actually talk openly about fear and self-doubt and what's going on behind the scenes and equally not only just talk about it I really wanted to make sure that it had a very strong practical component so making sure that we share strategies and tools and tactics and and tips from our guests on how they process and navigate their 
fear and their self-doubt and how they are actually chasing their goals in spite of their fear rather than what many of us do and that is wait for our fear to decrease or dissipate before we actually take action. So we're 116 episodes in now and uh, I've been really lucky to speak with Olympic gold medalists and world champions in all sorts of sports through to everyday people, everyday women and everyday men, just like you and I who are you know, working full-time, families, kids, and who are chasing their, their sporting goals and dreams as well. I think it's important too because, I, I mean, I, I think when I started the podcast, I just wanted to bust that myth about talking to elite athletes and elite performers. But I very quickly realised that, sometimes their stories are not relatable. Like I can't relate to Natalie Cook's experience of winning the Olympic gold medal for beach volleyball on Bondi Beach at the Sydney Olympics. There are parts of her stories I can't relate to, but I can relate to the fact that she didn't believe she was capable of winning a medal at Atlanta four years earlier and how she went about changing them. So that was one of the reasons, you know, I wanted to hunt down just, you know, everyday age group athletes who are doing the same, who are doing really cool things with busy life and busy workloads and how they navigate all of this stuff as well. And we've had a couple of mutual guests as well. So long-time listeners of this podcast, if you go and check out Sparta Chicks Radio, you'll see a couple of favorites from Uncomfortable Is Okay mm-hmm. as well. Jen, I have some questions I like to ask everyone towards the end of the convo. The first is, what was the last uncomfortable thing that you did and how did you get through it? Okay, I've got two. In the spirit of vulnerability, it was literally last night and it was an uncomfortable conversation, uncomfortable but important conversation with my husband about finances. Enough said on that. But in sporting, it's funny, I was thinking about this today. It literally is almost every day. Sometimes it's the decision to train when you really don't want to or when the workload is piling up. And it's really, it is actually uncomfortable that you just get that sense of guilt and overwhelm and stress and and just discomfort that comes from weighing up all the factors and making the decisions. And sometimes it's the discomfort is actually the training session itself and it's trying to get through the 10 seconds left on your rep or your effort or whatever it might be without quitting too early or telling yourself you can't or, or getting stuck in those negative mindsets. So I think we actually have the opportunity to practice our response to uncomfortable stuff pretty much on a daily basis, I think. Definitely. And your example there, I mean, you're, you're training your physical fitness, but really you're training your mental fitness so much more. I think that's really underestimated. The fact that every training session, even the easy ones sometimes, are an opportunity to train your mental approach, your mental dialogue what's going on upstairs and sometimes it's how do I get through the last 10 seconds of this interval and sometimes it's I've still got 20 minutes to go and I want to quit like it's an easy run or an easy wind trainer session on the bike or something and I've got half an hour to go and I'm bored and I've got work to do and I want to quit so you know getting through those moments both the the physically difficult as well as the mentally difficult there are great opportunities to practice your your mental response to uncomfortable situations what's the next uncomfortable thing that you're going to do and why is that uncomfortable for you probably my next training session <laughs> probably it's interesting it's a good question it's short and short and longer term stuff short term it will literally get be getting out of bed on saturday morning 
and then heading up a mountains because I've got a session planned that may or may not be prevented by black ice now, but we'll see what happens on a trail that I really don't enjoy very much because it's freaking hard and freaking boring. But I know it's exactly what I need to do at this stage of my preparation. So it would be so much easier to go and find one of the trails I actually love to do, but they're not going to give me the physical outcome that I need from my training. Yeah, that'll be a good chance to actually not just practice getting up and getting out of bed on a cold winter's morning and getting there, but actually using the entire session to work on that inner, inner dialogue and how I keep, you know, how I stay as positive mentally as I can throughout the whole session. Nice. We've talked a lot about this already, but do you have any other strategies that you use to approach uncomfortable situations? I think mantras is a big one for me. Um, I've used a lot over the years and sometimes it's just in the situation, before the situation. I've got a few go-to mantras that I just, I've used time and time and time again. Even just things like, you know, saying to myself, doubt, thanks, I've got this. Thanks, I've got this. Thanks, I've got this. Thanks, I've got this. I must, there's days I say that 20 times a day, but it's just a good reminder to, to come, you know, recognize that it is a story. I am telling myself a story about the situation, that it is uncomfortable, that I don't know if I can do it and bringing myself back. One of my favorites is if I'm doing a stair session, it is actually to say, we love stairs. 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 <laughs> so um, that gets a lot of work out in a hard training session. Even just reminding yourself that this too shall pass. It's massive. Whether it's an interval, a hard situation in relationships at work or something, just finding a way to reassure yourself that whatever the discomfort or difficulty in you are in at the moment is a temporary state. It will pass. I find that very centering and very grounding because I'm like, okay, I just have to get through this. And uh, I'll be out the other side. And as I said before, anything that gets me out of my head and back into my body. So counting, counting steps in a training session or mantras is another big one too that I use a lot. Awesome. And I like the practicality of the ones that you shared there as well. Jen, a couple more quick questions for you, but I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and have a conversation with me today, but also thank you for helping whole raft of women to face down their fears and overcome self-doubt and go out and do challenging things I'm sure they appreciate it and I really appreciate all the work that you do as well thank you thank you that's really important too because I think we role model behavior for the people around us and I'm a massive believer that happy confident brave women raise happy confident and brave kids and by following our goals and in spite of our fears. You know, we give permission to the people around us, to our kids, to our partners, to our girlfriends, to our mothers, to our family members, to our friends, that they can do it too. I really see it as a ripple effect that if we can each learn to navigate our fear and our self-doubt and sort of unleash, if you like, our full potential on our goals, whatever they may be, whether they're sport or work-related, um, the ripple effect of change that created is just, um, yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting. If people are interested in finding out more about you, listening to your podcast, working with you, where can they go? How can they do that? How can they connect? The easiest place is spiderchicks.com. 
It's our website and our home and our hub and you'll find all the links there. Otherwise, we're on all the socials at Spider Chicks and you can find the podcast on anywhere you listen, wherever you're listening to this podcast, just look for Spider Chicks Radio. Awesome. And connecting directly with you as well, anywhere they can yep. do that. Yes, absolutely. I'm on all the socials as well. I am at Sparta Gen. The best place to probably find me is Instagram. I'm a little bit addicted to Instagram. So you can find me at Sparta, Sparta Gen there. Um, or drop me an email. The email address is on my website. And I'd love to chat. I love just hearing people's stories and their experiences. So drop me an email. I'd love to hear from you. Jen, last question for you. Do you have a challenge to leave me and the listeners with this week? To recognize one story you're telling yourself at the moment that is not constructive, not helpful, it's not going to help you achieve your goal, and write yourself a new script for that story. That's an awesome challenge. Jen Brown, thank you so much for getting uncomfortable with me today. (laughs) You're very welcome. Thank you. There you have it team, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jen, it was really fascinating, it was really enjoyable for me as well, I really liked hearing her describe the imposter complex and actually since this conversation I've been much more aware of the times that I facilitate the imposter complex in myself, I'm setting up for a a workshop here in Wellington in the coming weeks about building resilience in in your patients and there's a couple of times that it's just the thoughts popped into my head hey who are you to go out and do this why are you doing this and it's been really interesting to to be aware and to uh, kind of bring that to the forefront of my mind and a question I've kind of thrown back at myself with that is who am I not to be doing this and I think that that question has just brought to light for me all the experience all the knowledge that I have in this area of building resilience and in, in other people based on the many years that I've I've spent helping rehabilitate people the expensive pieces of paper that I have up on my wall and the fantastic privilege that I've had having conversations with people like Jen and picking their brain about resilience about challenge about building other people up so maybe my my challenge for you is that when you become aware of the imposter complex striking what question can you ask yourself to flip that on its head thanks as always to Jyland for your awesome editing skills thank you to my brother jeremy desmond for the amazing theme music thank you as always to you guys as well for taking the time to get uncomfortable with jen and i today